being reasonable. Now heard on WHUP LP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we first speak with mindset coach and mindfulness teacher, Sharon Shelton, as she expresses her belief that managing one's mindset is an important pursuit. Next, we speak with Amanda Jackson, as she discusses her belief that early childhood is a special time that should be protected. In our last segment, we speak with the poet Main Man as he discusses his spiritual beliefs. But first up, mindset coach and mindfulness teacher, Sharon Shelton. A core belief that has emerged for me that kind of is a thread that runs through all of my work in the world, all of my own personal practice, is this idea that managing our mindset is probably the most important thing we can do. You know, I've been in recovery from alcoholism for 22 years, and since then, I've been really curious about, you know, it took me quite a while to sustain recovery. Once I did, I began to see just how powerful the way I related to the world determined whether I suffered or not, right? So once I got clean physically, then it was just a matter of working with the narratives and using certain tools to evaluate how I was interpreting the world and choosing a more skillful way to respond to the world and and also a more skillful and more compassionate way to relate to myself. So the belief that the person who is able to manage their mind wins. (laughs) The belief you're presenting is managing your mindset is something that's very important. Yes. And when you say mindset, what Mm -hmm. do you mean? By mindset, I mean not so much controlling our thoughts because that's impossible in my perspective, but It's relating to our thoughts in a way that is skillful and compassionate. So, you know, I may have a narrative that says I need to be an overachiever in order to feel okay. So that narrative has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. So that narrative initially created in me a drive to succeed that was based on a feeling of insufficiency. So it just became about me performing or it became about me people-pleasing and all the ways that that people um, behave in order to 
feel okay in the world because mm-hmm. I was just tr- I was chasing I was mm-hmm. running from this feeling of inadequacy. And that served me, honestly, in some ways. It served me professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it did is it is it I was constantly reinforcing that narrative that just me being me was not enough, inherently not enough, and that I needed to overcompensate for something. I needed to be something other than what I just was naturally, I naturally am. So as I, as I began this journey, um, and I think alcoholism sprung from that because I just couldn't, I couldn't run fast enough. Um, and the suffering of that became too great. So, 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 you know, as I, as I began, as I began this journey, um, what I discovered is initially I was trying to change that thought. I was trying to, 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 to say, you're spiritual now. I mean, I'm an, also an ordained interfaith minister. So I'd gone to seminary in New York thinking that that was a solution. Um, and that just kind of reinforced the belief that how I relate to myself in the world is, is, is where it's at. But um, in the beginning, I was trying to change that belief. And that didn't really work because it was kind of, um, it was more efforting. It was more of that same energy. So my mindset hadn't really shifted. I was just trying to talk myself out of, a, out of that belief. And then um, over time, as I began to um, study more Eastern practices, more Buddhism, mm-hmm. particularly in Theravada tradition, um, I began to understand it's not about me trying to change that narrative, but how am I relating to that narrative? And I think initially I related to that narrative in a way that, oh, that's truth. Well, yeah, clearly I have to overcompensate for something because, look, we're living in this culture. I mean, I'm a black woman and all these things. And I began to practice noticing the thought when it would arise and watching it mm-hmm. and saying, oh, here's that pattern again. I see. Okay. And then say, okay, I don't need to do anything. How does that feel in my body? Let me just be with it. Nothing's wrong. And then what would happen, I found, is that the thought would just kind of poof, kind of like a soap bubble. Um, and then a more skillful way of, of being, a more conscious, intentional way of behaving would show up in, its, in that space. I see. And so that's what I mean by mindset management. It's, not so, it's, it's really shining a light on these thought patterns that you have. Because most of them are operating under underneath the scene, un, mm-hmm. underneath the surface, and seeing what information is there in there for you about how you how you show up, um, how these play out, how they might manifest in your life, mm-hmm. and then practice um, identify what might be more skillful way to show up based on what you intend for your life, and then seeing what thoughts align with that particular intention. So when you're saying change your mindset, I get the sense what you're talking about is taking thoughts and even feelings about yourself possibly and reframing them and putting them in a different context. That's part of it. That's absolutely part of it. Um, And I, I, I think mindfulness which is why I, I, I recently completed a training with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield uh, around mindfulness meditation. And I'm also currently uh, studying um, Theravada and Bo- Buddhism to kind of really understand 
the ground out of which this whole mindfulness practice has come out of. But but that's mindfulness is a critical piece of this as well because it is yes it is about reframing, but with an energy of um, hmm, this this is a really good question. Here's how I like to 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 uh, describe it with clients. Sometimes it's almost like there are little versions of us. Uh, that make up our personality. So there might be little controlling Sharon, might be little judgmental Sharon, might be little spiritual Sharon, all these aspects of my personality that make up me. And then there's kind of big Sharon, who's the wise one, who kind of is more the watcher, you know, and and at my best moment when I'm feeling most connected, I'm in a space of equanimity where I can be like, okay, this is all happening, and I can watch it happening, but I don't have to be enmeshed in it. I think I see where you're coming from. Yeah. And where I'm trying to understand is when change occurs in this framework, mm-hmm. what is responsible for the change? What is causing the change? I think it's, it's that's, a, that's a good question. Usually it's a shift in attention. So oftentimes... We're giving our attention to these thought patterns unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we're just following the train of thought, whether it be I'm not good enough, whether it be I have to prove myself, whether it be whatever it is. We're just following that train of thought unconsciously with our attention, mm-hmm. right? We're just attending to that thought. And then as a res- because we're attending to that thought, we're, we'll look for evidence in the environment that co- corroborates I see. That thought. This, there may be 90% of other information that doesn't, but there's 10% that does. That's where our attention is going to go because that's where our attention is. A big piece of the mindful mind, mindset management and when the shift starts to happen is when we practice more intentionally directing our thought. So say, yes, this thought around inadequacy has arisen. I see you, but I'm going to choose to attend to a thought that says, I'm really passionate about learning how to be more confident when speaking in front of people because I have, I'm really passionate about this and I'm really passionate about that. And I know it's going to be challenging, but discomfort is part of growth. So, so my attention is in, is in this particular thought pattern. Mm-hmm. So as a result, I'm going to look for evidence that corroborates that thought pattern. Like, oh, that person you don't know what's happening. Or you may figure it out a, a, a week later. Damn, I was I was really anxious all week. Or, oh, I, I really showed up cranky all month. What's going because we're not we're not tuned into well, what am I thinking? So it's really kind of uh using mindfulness to kind of pay more attention to your present moment experience and what's happening. Notice the thoughts that are there. Mm-hmm. Are those the thoughts you want to continue to play with? Part of being human is we have these self-confirmation biases that we go through our lives and accept information that seems to jive with um, how we see the world and how we think others see us, and we automatically reject information that is to the contrary. And I think what you're telling me is by shifting focus, shifting attention to that process, uh, thereby change occurs. Absolutely. Over time. Mm -hmm. And what can also get in the way is we think, now we know that intellectually, what you just said, Mm -hmm. right? That's not a hard concept. Mm -hmm. 
But when we don't do it, we beat ourselves up. We think it should be easy. Well, I'm just not going to think that anymore. But that's why when I, I, I've, I've uh, uh, studied uh, neuroplasticity a bit with Rick Hansen. And that really helped me understand, well, why is it so difficult? Like, I know this, but why do I keep doing, uns- why do I keep playing with the unskillful thoughts? So you're saying there's an objective reality and that where change can be affected because sometimes objective reality can't be changed is that we change the lens in which we see that reality? Exactly. And depending on the circumstance that you find yourself, um, you know, I do work with some social workers in West Baltimore, and they're working in some of the most traumatic environments um, that you could imagine. Um, so it's more difficult for folks, you know, in, in certain situations. But, you know, a lot, a lot of us aren't living in those uh, chronically traumatic uh, environments. How important is truth to you? Um, big T or little t? <laughs> big T in the sense that truth relating to something that is real. Yeah. Um, I used to believe in one ultimate capital T truth and that everyone else's truth. I think where I'm, where I'm going with this is that the reason why I bring up truths mm-hmm. is let's say I have these automatic thoughts and these automatic mm-hmm. thoughts say, Mark, uh, you can't do anything. Why even try to stay in bed? Yeah. And these automatic thoughts inhibits me from enjoying life, inhibits me from trying new things, yeah. and they're not working for me. What if I change that lens mm-hmm. and now the lens I choose to adopt, let's say, is I can do anything, mm-hmm. that I can uh, conquer the world and I can... That's a big leap. And, right. Yeah. But, but for, for this example. Gotcha, gotcha. And there is a, probably an objective reality of what I can and can't do just based on who I am and, yep. and my skill set. Right. But let's say I do adopt that lens uh-huh. and that lens is very helpful. Uh-huh. And that lens allows me to do a lot more than I've done and it gets, allows me to be in relationships. Now, that lens is really not true in the sense of what I can and can't do, but it's helping. Why isn't it based in reality? Because I can't do everything. Okay, okay. But it's helping me do more. So what's more important to believe in something that's true and real, like these are things I can do, uh-huh. and these are things I can't do, and this I'm trying to be very realistic of what I can and can't do, yeah. or should I adopt the lens of I can do almost anything, I'm superhuman, mm-hmm. even though I'm not, uh-huh. but it helps me do more things. And... From my perspective, I think if it's serving you, that's the question to ask. Is it serving you or is it not serving you? So if I told myself that story that I can do anything, even though I know in the back of my mind that I can't play in the NBA, right? Or I can't, whatever this, whatever that is that doesn't align with, with objective reality, right. um, that's going to just cause me anxiety because then it's going to, for me, it's it's going to cause me to do this striving, and it's kind of like why affirmations sometimes don't work for everyone. It's because you're telling yourself a story you know is not true. So I encourage folks to tell themselves a story that serves them, um, that feels true for them. Well, that's so, what I'm trying to understand. Yeah. So it seems that the story 
is more important than what is real, right? Well, we're we're making it all up anyway. <laughs> like I'm right this I'm making this all up anyway. I'm telling myself a story about this interaction right now. Like the story I'm telling myself is that wow, this is fun. This is interesting. I'm really curious about Mark. I'm in I'm enjoying I'm, I'm curious as to how this all will unfold and uh I'm just going to oh, I'm noticing I'm feeling anxious. So let me oh, I'm noticing that. Let me just be with that and not kind of so so it's it's, or I could tell myself a story I'm like oh my god what's he thinking oh I hope I'm doing it right right so so this so um I I think what I'm hearing you ask is can we then just lie to ourselves if it makes us feel good and I guess that's not what I'm saying Mm -hmm. um what I'm saying is uh evaluate the narratives that you tend to play with most often. Mm-hmm. Usually we have a top five. Mm-hmm. Evaluate whether those narratives are working for you or not. Right. If they're not working for you, then say, well, what other narrative that feels just as true would be more in alignment with how I want to feel about my life in any particular area? And then have that in my consciousness right? and then notice with mindfulness, notice where the choice points are. And then at those choice points, choose to pivot Mm -hmm. to that more skillful narrative. And initially it's going to be difficult for the things that we talked about. You're not just fighting your psychology, you're fighting your physiology. So initially it's going to be difficult, but over time it's kind of like compound interest. You know, you pivot a tiny bit, each time, you know, um, maybe you want to be more authentic. You, you want to be less in your head, wondering what people are thinking about you. Well, okay, well, when you go to Whole Foods and you check out, and you're 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 at the checkout counter, you know, look at the person in the eye who's checking you out and say, "How are you?" and really mean it. Like, how are you? From a authentic, vulnerable, wanting to connect space, and that's just a little. Instead of saying, you know. Uh, I wonder what she's thinking and why is she wearing her hair like that and playing with those thoughts because those thoughts aren't aligned with how I want to feel in the world. The thoughts of connection, of curiosity, of love, those are the thoughts I want to continue to nurture and play with. So I'm going to use every opportunity I can to strengthen that muscle of paying attention to that particular narrative. And it doesn't matter. You know, and I tell clients, you can play with any narrative you want to. My only question is, is it serving you? Mm-hmm. And is it serving others? If it's not, then that's your practice. And over time, your life will will be transformed. And so I don't get too much into the big T's so much. Right. Um, and like I was saying, that you know, there are some big T's. I think, you know, the, 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 the idea that there is suffering, that we all suffer, even big sufferings and little sufferings, the idea that everything is always changing and permanence right. is another one. So I think there are some uh, ultimate truths that I believe, but I don't get too much into the philosophy of it. I, 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 I like to stay more into in the practicality of it mm-hmm. and say, you know, First, set your intention of how you want to be in the world, how you want to feel in the world. Well, I want to be X, Y, and Z. Okay, so how do we stay in alignment with that intention? 
some people are able to make those changes and some people are not. Correct. What are the primary reasons we account for those differences? Mm, Good question. I think from my own experience, one has been a level of commitment because there's a difference between being interested in change and being committed to change. And some folks, and there's no judgment either way, but it's just important to know where you're at. Um, if you're interested, you'll do it if it's convenient. You'll begin. You'll do this practice. You'll engage in this work of mindset management um, when it's easy, when it's convenient, when you feel like it, um, when the conditions are right. Um, but when, if you're committed to it, if you're you, you committed to shifting your mindset in ways that will improve the quality of your life, and you believe that the process works then you'll do it whether you feel like it or not, even if it's uncomfortable. You'll, you'll push yourself. You'll recognize and appreciate that, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. So how can I make peace with the discomfort as long as it's here? That's the difference between committed and interested. And, and so when I notice that there's a, a resistance and I bring up that committed versus interested, I'm like, you know, and describe it. And they're like, you know, I kind of think you're right, you know, and for whatever reason. So I said, well, what would get you to be committed versus just interested? And so we do some of that work and we figure out what's really your intention. What's the big why? Like, why is it so important that you want to lose weight, for example? How do you think you'll feel when you lose weight? You know, get to the real core desire, the big why. And usually that's what drives commitment. Some folks will come, I just want to lose 10 pounds. I need your help. Okay. Um, and oftentimes, unless we get to the root of why they want to lose the weight, what's the real aspiration? Is it possible to experience positive change in one's life, mm-hmm. but not for the reason the person attributes the change to? Uh, for example, one could attribute change to um, changing your mindset, as you suggested in your belief. Mm-hmm. And believe that's why positive change is occurring. But let's say during that change, um, there's a person who gets to meet with a lot of people mm-hmm. and talk about their problems mm-hmm. and have a person just be friendly and mm-hmm. have a, a positive regard for that person and not be non judgmental to that person and sort of help them lead the way. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for those reasons to affect the change as opposed to the initial belief that you presented? Mm. Yeah. Um, I, it, and so I'm, I'm trying to think of a particular scenario. For example, someone may come and say, I need to lose 30 pounds. And, you know, we kind of talk about the whys. We focus maybe first on the behaviors because that's where they're at. And then we develop a relationship to the point where they trust me to go a little bit deeper. And over the process, what we'll find sometimes is that the real aspiration was connection, Mm -hmm. was that they felt that the weight prevented them from being authentic and connecting with people because they were so self-conscious about how they looked. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't so much to be lighter, right, the aspiration to lose the weight. The aspiration was to connect, so then we talk about, okay, what other ways can you feel connected that have nothing to do with weight loss? So it might be, you know, how can you find a meetup around something that you're 
passionate about to kind of take some of the pressure off of meeting new people? Or how can you, um, what other ways can you find to connect with people, whether virtually online, Facebook or social media or in person? And what happens is the more connected they feel, the better they feel about themselves just as they are. And then they're more likely to stick with an exercise regimen. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a case where they may off, they often come with a, a ego driven or superficial um, need. And that's not a judgment. It's just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a need to change a job or to change my husband or to lose weight or make more money or whatever. But but usually if you get to the, the what the real driving desire aspiration is, there's other ways that they can achieve that not just by quitting their job or divorcing their husband, you know, um, because then you get into this kind of moving the, the chess pieces on the chessboard and spend all your time doing that instead of saying, how do I want to be in this game? I imagine changing one's mindset doesn't happen in a vacuum in terms of there are other people who live around most people mm-hmm. and by changing one's mindset, I wonder if one could argue that you are changing other people's mindsets around you, and you could quite possibly be changing the mindsets of people who don't want their mindsets changed. Mm-hmm. That's probably my number one question I get. Like, I'm changing and practicing and practicing managing my mindset, but my husband's not. Or my kids not, um, and so it's. What do I do? It's just so difficult. And my encouragement is to number one to your point, what you just said. When you change, you affect the field around you, right? We all do. We all walk around with energy fields. So as you change, there's there's going to be a, an unconscious shift over time. I believe that. But also, those become opportunities for you to practice. There's nothing that has gone wrong. You know, if, you're, if, if your husband, for example, is engaging in the same argument um, and you're used to responding in a certain way, coming from fear and, and anxiety or whatever, and you're feeding his fear and anxiety and you're in this cycle, when that comes up on, from him, there's an opportunity for you in that moment to practice. You know, how am I going to be with his fear and anxiety? Or how am I going to be with the way he's showing up? I have a choice. I don't have to engage him at the level he's at. I can engage him in a different way. Like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and we'll talk about this when you're, you're, you're I'm noticing your tone is, is kind of high and it's hard to talk to you at this point. So let me, so whatever, there's ways that you can maybe engage and use that as practice to show up in a way that's more aligned. Because again, that's a choice point. And the more choice points we have, the more opportunities we have to practice. So that's a good thing. If we can look at it that way, instead of saying something has gone wrong, why, doesn't, why isn't he different? Well, he is the way he is. I mean, how arrogant of you to think that you, he should be different. He's just being him. You have a choice in how you interpret that scenario and how you respond. And you can respond in a way that's compassionate or present uh, grounded, open, vulnerable, and see what happens. And what often happens is when you respond in that different way, it, it almost creates a space of invitation 
mm-hmm. for that person to show up differently as well. That doesn't mean they will. But if they don't, and they're not able to meet you in a more skillful space, that's a, that's a different conversation we need to have. Doing what you do, have you noticed a difference, say, in the last three years, either by the clients you see or the client's presentations of their issues? Mm-hmm. I have. The anxiety has skyrocketed. Um, skyrocketed. Everyone is so extraordinarily anxious. And I work with a lot of people who are uh, tend to be uh, sensitives, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who tend to pick up on the negative energies of other people and in the world. And uh, it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, anxiety around what's going to happen to the world, mm-hmm. uh, anxiety within families when there's differing uh, views politically, uh, fractured relationships as a result of it, uh, people feeling a, a lot of... Uh, uh, Helplessness, like the problems are so big and so intractable, if that's a word, um, and and so it's it's often uh, it's it's interesting. They'll come with a particular issue. Like I'm thinking of clients. Many of my clients are in transition, so they're either uh, wanting to get a different job or. There's a health issue or there are new empty nesters or uh, they're starting their own businesses or, or there's there's some kind of transition and they're coming to me for support. But the, the more we work with each other, there's just this deep underlying angst um, that we just have to find ways to work with. Because, again, that comes from thoughts, right? The thoughts that this shouldn't be happening or this should be different. They're just thoughts. Um, so it's not so much to to change our thoughts so that we become apathetic and but you know you can you can be passionate about what you believe in in two different ways you can beat people over the head with your peace sign it's one way of doing it mm-hmm. a lot of people do activism that way by oh, you should be this way um and then what happens is all that energy and anger is it burns you out over time it's not sustainable and plus you're creating separation in a way you know, you may it's, it may be based on a, a, a truth that you have about the way life should be, but you're still creating separation. And there's another way of, of doing kind of activism is really, you know, advocating for fighting for something as opposed to fighting against something. That's a two, two different energies, fighting for equity and equality or fighting against capitalism or whatever it is. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. Amanda Jackson discusses her belief that early childhood should be protected, coming up after this short break.
that's a good question. So I think people like to talk about nature versus nurture in early childhood. And then they talk about it in all levels of biology and science, but specifically with humans and tiny humans, we talk about nature versus nurture, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say most of the science we have now says that we become a combination of how our genetics are going to unfold, Mm -hmm. what our genetics say we are. Mm -hmm. I think we become a combination between our genetics and our environment. And once a child is born, you can't really control the genetic part. Like that's already out there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the environment you can control. So I think you were asking me, what is the risk if early childhood is not protected? And I would say, you know, PTSD is a thing we recognize now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when children have to go through trauma at an early age, such as, you know, losing a parent in a violent way, witnessing something violent, um, witnessing their their parent perhaps abuse another parent or even mm-hmm. having abuse themselves. When children, you know, have to go through those very personal experiences that impact them so much, they do have emotional and mental fallout from that. They do have consequences to who they are. What is it about our country and our culture where we don't see this as as an important, as an issue as Scandinavian countries? Hmm. Maybe it's because our culture has that value of rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. In other words, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and that your problems are your own problems and your neighbor's problems are their own problems kind of thing. I think we delude ourselves. I think we're delusional as Americans. I think we pretend like what other families are doing in the community doesn't impact us. That somehow we're not interconnected when we really are. Well, yeah. I mean... Look at the opioid epidemic and look at, you know, crime waves that we had in the 80s that were related also to drugs Mm -hmm. and gangs. And, you know, look at how if you want your children to play outside because they need that outside time, they need the sunshine, they need the vitamin D, Mm -hmm. they need to be able to play. uh Children need to be able to play outside to develop in a helpful way. So if you look at what is that outside environment like, if you want your children to be able to play out in your neighborhood, you do need to have a safe neighborhood. So, you know, and we know that sometimes we have a shortage of police or the police aren't trained as well. But, you know, ultimately what happens with your neighbor is going to cross your path. It's going to impact you. Maybe because our communities are more spread out here and we have a lot of rural communities, Mm -hmm. people don't see the impact as quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe it takes longer for them to see the difference. But actually, the rural communities in this country have some of the most intense problems with the drug epidemic and the children falling through the cracks, essentially, because of that. What's the personal stake you have in this? Why is this so important? To you personally? Well, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. I've lived here my whole life. Um, so this feels like home to me. And I feel like the children 
that move to our state all the time, which is happening every day, um, and the children that grow up in these communities, you know, to me, I feel like I owe them my best. Really, I, you know, they're not my children in the sense that I gave birth to them, but they're the children in my community, right? They're the people that I have an opportunity to interact with. I have an opportunity, hopefully, to be someone positive in their life, to be someone that cares for them and shows them that an adult can be kind mm-hmm. and patient, mm-hmm. shows them that adult can be trustworthy. Because there will be times in their life where they experience negative things at the hands of an adult. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, working with children is my gift. And it's something also that I have education in and experience with. But I feel like I owe it to the community to work with young children. Because if that were me, I would want my child to have someone positive in their life. I would want my child to have someone that, you know, sets fair limits and teaches them things in a positive way. I would want my child to have someone that's patient. So I really just empathize and put myself in the position of their parents. But I also look at the greater need and see that whatever happens in our communities, these big problems that we have. So like, health insurance, lack of health care, opioids, you know, opioid epidemic, whatever those big problems are in our society, they really do boil down to the littlest citizens. Like they're really impacted the most. So they need the help the most. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. The poet Main Man is coming up after this short break.
Say it again. I missed that one. I, I couldn't didn't quite follow you. All right. Just because I don't know something's true doesn't mean that it's true or not. For instance, in Australia, there's venomous things that I don't know are venomous. But people in Australia, because they live there and yeah. that's their 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 habitat or their right. nature, they understand what's it. But because I don't know it's not true doesn't mean that it's not true. So what I'm saying is, is that regardless of if there is even people called Australians or people called Americans, that snake is venomous regardless of what they believe. Right. Correct. Unless I could be a person who has the anti-venom built into me. It could bite me. I don't die. So that is not true to a person who has God-given anti-venom or that. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to understand because the way I think about truth. You think is, from a scientific standpoint, not a spiritual standpoint. Well, maybe. Yeah. And, and yeah. I guess and I guess to me, it's hard for me to discuss that as truth. Because you're talking about physical truth, right? Physically in this earl, in this world, the there are physical things that are true. But I'm talking about God. God is not just of this world. You see what I mean? I'm talking about spirit is not just of this world. You know? And maybe we have to describe what we mean by truth. And by truth, I usually mean that something that is grounded in something that is real, something that is that exists and is true, quote unquote, whether we are here or not here. And from our, from our understanding. It's only true to us due to our lack of our, our own small-minded understanding. We're not able to know everything that's true because we don't have the capacity, like I said in the beginning, to know all truths. So, so in other words, anything can be true? Anything is possible through God, yes. Do you think that could get us into trouble if we as people think that anything can be true? Let me put it this way. Just just say hypothetically, we happen to live in a time where one half the country believes in one thing and another half of the country believes in another thing. And you could see where that might cause problems, even though one half of the country say, well, it's true for me. And the other half of the country says, well, what I believe is true for me. And wouldn't that cause a problem? That's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the crux of all problems because people, uh, instead of trying to reach understanding, they just stand on this, on this, on their square and say, I'm true, I'm 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 right regardless of what your truth is. This is a six from where I'm sitting, even though you say it's a nine. And then we get into a fight about it. So that's the me that's the reasoning for And there's no way to resolve what is true. There's no way to test these things to know if someone's ideas are more accurate or yeah, maps we took on time, reality. We took time for understanding, you know, if you were to six sit down and maybe come around the table and look at it from another perspective, mm-hmm. you might see that, oh, yeah, from where I was sitting, it is a six. But now that I come around the table and see that it's a nine, you know, those type of things have to happen. You have to have understand. You have to you have to seek knowledge. So for your example, where you have a six and a nine and you could perceive one number as two different numbers, I understand where you're coming from, how a person's subjective experience can interpret what's objectively there. So what's objectively there is a metal squiggly thing. And can we agree that there's a metal squiggly thing sitting on the table, whether we perceive it as a six or a nine? Can we at least agree on something like that, that, that is, there's a truth there? Well, it, it's physically there, so that's not a debate. However, but you're talking about the interpretation of that physical thing or that squiggly mm-hmm. metal mm-hmm. thing or whatever, right? Right. Well, if given a choice, would you rather have evidence for a God or would you rather have faith for a God. 
um, I think God is so great that I don't have to have evidence. I, I see evidence every day. I see a flower blooming. I get up every morning and get new breath in my lungs. Um, my daughter was born. That was evidence. I, I, I see evidence everywhere. So there's, there's evidence everywhere. So I would rather have faith because evidence is already here. All right. Let's say we have Jim sitting here on the couch. And Jim <laughs> says, hey, main man, I believe that there are physical explanations for the things you say, and there's not a spirituality, and I could come up with ways to explain things just purely in a physical universe without spirituality. What do we say to Jim? I only believe half of things that I see. So if he shows it to me, and he can repeat it overly, uh, I would give it some kind of clout, but not very much, you know. So if he was able to show it to you, explain it to you, to your sufficient understanding of what he's talking about it, would, it wouldn't downplay my beliefs and my faith and my creator no would anything my creator he's i think if i was to actually come face to face with him in spiritual form after i pass and he was to say oh all that stuff um everything happened on accident it was everything was random um you know and i'm i'm the wizard of oz per se you know what i mean um, so none of this is true and I'm, I'm just as lost as you are. Um, that, that would be the, he, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like I believe in my grandmother. She's like the most important person in this world to me. She never let me down. She would be, no one else could tell me nothing about her. She would be the only person that could let me down when it comes to her. Yeah. So I feel it's the same way. No one else around my grandmother could tell me nothing about my grandmother. Yeah. And I think the same thing is about God. No one could tell me about God. Tell yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. To me, when I think about poetry, and however we define truth, it gets to a truth, and that's well, you a can purpose do that. of... You can do that with any of the arts. I mean, you can paint a painting that gets to truth for someone. Mm -hmm. What do you think drives you to do this? To be a poet or to express yourself that way? What drives me is the is the change that I see not only in myself but in the people who I come in contact with. Like, uh, I did a poem one time. I had just wrote this poem that same day. I wrote it that day, and I got to the event. And I usually have a, I usually get there and I and I gauge the crowd to decide what my set is going to be. Okay. And I got there and I said, you know what, I'm gonna do this new poem that I just wrote. And so uh, I did the new poem, and at the end of the show, a lady came up to me and she was like. I was going to kill myself today until I saw this flyer that you was doing this event and I came to the joint and uh, your new poem just put new life into me. Yeah. So it's like therapy for other people. Yeah. You know, so when I write, I say it's therapy for myself, but when I give it away, it becomes therapy for whoever's listening. Yeah. It's the fact that you're having on other people. Yeah, man. It's yeah. It's dope. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. Yes, I believe in the most high, but to me, hip-hop has always been the gospel. You 
See, I started studying the book of Rhymes because to me, the illest MCs, they were just like apostles. Because in the beginning, Nostradamus said that it was written for all us Illmatic street disciples. So I had to get in where I fit in. See, I learned that your genius is where your genes is. See, that's Genesis. And then a prince named Rakim showed me how a king could bring his whole team in. Just like Leviticus. Wu-Tang is forever for the children of creation. And I used to believe that these little young MCs were the future until I had myself a revelation. I mean, wasn't it Eve who gave birth to forbidden fruit right after her rough rider bus? I understand now why Andre 3K said that 16 just ain't enough because John needed at least three 16s to explain to us how God so beloved Harlem world that he delivered mace to us from being a shiny suit bad boy. Renegotiated his contract for 50 cent like a remix covenant. <laughs> now ain't that sad boy? He must have been tired of the executive head of the trustee board dancing all up on the hymnals, diddy bopping and puffing those burning bushes all while sending those subliminals. Take that, take that. See, when you're in showbiz, I guess that's just a small thing to a giant. So before your soul gets clapped for casting the first stone, you need to be more David than Goliath inside these stained glass graffiti-covered tabernacles, popping bottles for communion, sipping scissor with your 3-6 mafia hiding your right hand from what the left one is doing. And it's not personal, it's strictly business. Eric Sermon shows you who was the real hustler. Only the parish be making dollars. All the while, you are just a customer. Eating ramen soup noodles for your meal. Paying tithes on the 360 deal while the deacon is still recouping. Paying off his Snoop DeVille church. But the church ain't got nothing to do with the building fund because the building ain't the church. It's the funds. Church. Slum Village Donuts fundraised out of the fan base because them church fans cost funds and these church programs are promotional fires passed out to show you exactly where the party's at the church sign says all ladies are free who wear one of them big brim party hats so do the Dougie in line with your get fresh crew six minutes before the show if you is dressed as slick as Rick then Lottie Dottie the bouncer will usher you which way to go while the Choir director is DJing in the section right next to where your VIP seat is. Now you're in whose house? Runner's house. And the Reverend is running in my Adidas while Pastor Troy is preaching to the choir of Bone Thugs harmonizing about their Uncle Charles. And when service is over, you and your goody mom can get up, get out, and get some soul food in the Freestyle Fellowship Hall. You better keep them on the main line like Kanye through the wire. Because before he walked with Jesus in his Yeezys, his graduation stage was a lake of fire. And it's not easy watching the throne, especially when you have a reasonable doubt. But with a Rockefeller blueprint and a dashing dame, you can always figure it out. You see, I witnessed Jehovah dodging the evils while writing songs of Solomon about the sun of the morning in the dark with a flow like Noah. Big Pippin had holes and rows of 22 tools walking all upon the ark. But See how your better half can split you in half like Moses' staff if you don't know how to play your part. Chapter 4, verse 44. Because if God don't bless it, he must damn it. While I'm two L's in too deep like Cool J's radio rocking this diggable planet. So unless you as light as a rock and paper thin, I cram to understand it. In order to slay these rocks of Gibraltar, you got to abide by the Ten Crack Commandments. You can't have life after death without being ready to die, you dig? Only the notorious are born again, so everything you do, you best do it big. 
Even Tupac Machiavelli theorized in seven days that he could rise like a rose out of the concrete in front of his dead mama's eyes. So the ambitions of a rider will make you wonder if heaven got a ghetto. Just be still when you talk to God like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, or better yet, DMX, cause it could be dark and hell could be hot to the next, but he is still blood of your blood, and he is still flesh of your flesh. I can see the Holy Ghost in Ghostface's face, even though his supreme clientele will meet their maker soon, so I guess everyone is gonna have to take off their mask before they meet their MF doom. And don't let them take your daylight soul just to prove that you're the plug. The root of the matter is that every black thought should be on a quest for love, speaking in native tongues like a tribe called Exodus, the X-Clan with their sister soldiers, plus all of their jungle brothers, because it takes a nation of to hold us. While three poor righteous teachers were wise men, they followed the black star to meet their master. But I wonder if they knew that big baby Jesus would grow up one day to become a old dirty bastard because the prodigal son wasn't no shook one he knew that jumping around that house of pain was most definitely a capital pun plus the lifestyles of the poor and dangerous is something that he knew so well it's a shame how all those lost boys in the hood keep taking such a great big l you see knowledge reigns supreme even gang stars become gurus your life ain't got to be full of tragedy to become an intelligent hoodlum you can have a good day like Good Friday or Ice Cube with no attitude because the covered money is the rule of evil. But even the guard MC got paid in full. And Killer Priest gave us basic instructions. And that's all good news. But after I get off this Killer Mike and finish this LP, everybody still has to run them jewels. Amen. Amen.